A couple of years ago, I boasted to a colleague that I could encapsulate the history of classical music in the United States in one name and a half. I proceeded to write Dvorak, Gersh. The colleague, who happened to be Richard Crawford, then is now embarked on what is certain to be a landmark biography of George Gershwin, laughed not incredulously, but knowingly. Rich is long familiar with my passions and idiosyncrasies as a musical scholar. In Classical Music in America, A History, 2005, I called American classical music a mutant high culture. Normal musical high cultures are founded on a native canon. But American orchestras and opera companies are Eurocentric in repertoire. No native canon of sufficient consequence materialized. Instead, classical music in the United States ultimately gravitated to, my terminology, a culture of performance. One reason the story of classical music in America peaks before World War I is that the eventual emergence of a native canon was then taken for granted, and the compositional ferment of those fin de siècle decades produced, in the person of Charles Ives, one of the two great creative talents in the annals of American art music. The other reason is that the turn of the 20th century was a period of phenomenal institutional growth and attendant heroic personal vision. I here refer to people like Theodore Thomas, Henry Higginson, Jeanette Thurber, Antonine Dvorak, Anton Seidel, Laura Langford, and Oscar Hammerstein and to institutions like the Thomas Orchestra, the Boston Symphony, the Chicago Orchestra, the National Conservatory of Music, the Seidel Society, and the Manhattan Opera. Dvorak, a director of Thurber's National Conservatory, was the influential and controversial central embodiment of the aspiration to produce an American canon. He also, presciently, ardently, prophesied that an American school of music would be founded upon Negro melodies. After World War I, the creative impulse in American music migrated to jazz. American concert composers took a back seat to Ellington and Armstrong, and to famous orchestras, conductors, and instrumentalists. Some would say that Aaron Copland was a front-seat occupant, but this is wishful thinking. The composer in the front seat was the one composer of genius who would mediate between the high culture of performance and a popular musical culture in which creativity and performance were never severed from one another. That composer, alongside Ives, the second great creative talent to buoy American art music, was, of course, George Gershwin. Gershwin lived barely long enough to produce an operatic masterpiece, Porgy and Bess. Then, in 1937, at the age of 38, he died of a brain tumor. Had he enjoyed a normal span of years, the course of American music would have changed. More than anyone else, 
he commanded the talent to heal the schism between what had become, as the present book emphasizes, mutually estranged worlds of American music. Hence, Dvorak, Gersh. My obsession with the late Gilded Age is partly a product of my lifelong obsession with Wagner. On both sides of the Atlantic, this was the time for Wagnerism. Wagner has doubtless been more written about than any other composer in Western history. It was my good fortune to discover the story of Seidel and Langford's Seidel Society as central catalysts for American Wagnerism, and so produce a Wagner book with something new to say, Wagner Nights, an American History, 1994. Gershwin, for decades, was little written about by...